as we begin Second Corinthians, um, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in Acacia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, let that sink in, our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for the consolation and salvation which is effective for enduring the same suffering with which we also suffer. What's the reoccurring word here? Suffer. (laughs) Or if we are comforted, it is your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will be partakers of the consolation. For we, we do not want you to be ignorant brethren. And believe me, most churches in America today are ignorant of what the Bible teaches, of what the real Christian life is really all about. For our trouble which came to us in Acacia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. And I stopped there, and I couldn't go on for a while. And I'm saying, hold it a second here. We're talking about the Apostle Paul, and he was in such stress and um, uh, trial so that we desired even death. Paul said that's the amount that he could take, and he said, I want out even unto death. That's why the name of our message this morning is even unto death. And basically what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take what the Bible teaches here and then contrast much of what the American church is like today. So that when you go through trials and sufferings or maybe your soul, uh, we have a lot of uh, families that are are sick that we need to pray for in our fellowship. And um, some beyond beyond measure. And um, the one thing that I don't want them to think is that, well, maybe there's something wrong with my faith or, or uh, gee, that isn't what a lot of churches are teaching today. And um, I want to make that distinction. And if that point can get across, then we'll have succeeded as we dive into 2 Corinthians. But I had to stop when I read verse eight, so that we despaired even of life. Verse nine, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raised the dead. Let's do a quick review of 1 Corinthians because it's been a couple weeks as we've been back because of of the holidays and so on and so forth. Um, Corinth. Corinth in its day was the largest 
and wealthiest city in Paul's day. Let that sink in. Uh, I'll put a picture of what it might have looked like in its glory days when Paul was there. I'll put that on the screen now. We, that really isn't Corinth, by the way, because we really didn't have anybody with Polaroids back then that could snap a shot and, and uh, <laughs> show us. But I can show you what it looked like when I was there, and this would be the ruins of Corinth. And um, as long as uh, this is actually Corinth, but it, as long as we're talking about, about it, it had 700,000 people that lived in the city of Corinth, and two-thirds of the 700,000 were slaves, which tells me that the reason for their wealth and prosperity is because it was a port city that had two ports. And I'll show you the canal that now connects them. This is the Corinthian Canal for all the way up to the middle 1800s they would actually drag their boats. Did I say that right from Wisconsin? Boats, boats. Okay, boats. And um, they actually tried to make this canal, but what a feat. I mean, it's solid rock. And, um, but that's what it looks like today. I've, we've driven over that, and we've been there. And you'd have a port on one side for commerce, and then you would have a port on this side, rather than having to sail all the way around. Um, Also, um, it was known for, in the last picture, we had had this mountain. They were in a paganism and perversion on a level unprecedented. And I believe that had something to do with the prosperity of the people that lived there and the fact that they had slaves. And they had um, 1,000 temple prostitutes that came down and they had their own form of worship, which I'll just let your own imagination figure out what that would have been all about. Both 1st and 2nd Corinthians were written in 56 AD. Paul was in Ephesus when he wrote 1st Corinthians. Now, when we get to um, Thessalonians, there's a reason there's a first and a second Thessalonians. Paul had only been there about a month, but he taught every major doctrine. We're moving from Corinth now to Thessalonica. But he taught them about the rapture, taught them about the tribulation, but (laughs) they're a month old in the Lord. And so a rumor got started that they had missed the rapture and that they were entering into the tribulation. And so Paul says, now I gotta write it in the letter. And that's the reason we have 2 Thessalonians. He says, don't you remember that when I was there? Well, (laughs) Paul cut him some slack. They're only three weeks old in the Lord. And so they're trying to figure this all out. Same thing here as we look at the city of Corinth. Paul Since Paul's first letter, the Corinthian church had been swayed by false teachers who stirred the people up against Paul. They claimed he was fickle, proud, 
unimpressive in appearance and speech. I want you to just think about that a little bit when you think about the Apostle Paul. He was unimpressive in appearance and speech. That he was dishonest and unqualified as an apostle of Jesus Christ. They were um, questioning him and his apostleship. He didn't look like an apostle. Paul sent Titus to Corinth to deal with these difficulties and upon his return rejoiced to hear of the Corinthians' change of heart. So Paul wrote this letter to express his thanksgiving for the repentive majority and to appeal to the rebellious minority, that I want you to notice something here, plural, more than one man, to accept his authority. Throughout the book, he defends his conduct, character, and calling as an apostle of Jesus Christ. What did we read in verse one? Um, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. You know, he got saved on the road to Damascus. Damascus road conversion. Um, So Paul wrote this letter to express his thanksgiving for the repentive majority and to appeal to the rebellious minority to accept his authority. Throughout the book, he he defends his conduct, character, and calling as an apostle of Jesus Christ. First Corinthians and expected Timothy to visit Corinth and return with him. Timothy apparently brought Paul a report of the opposition that had developed against him in Corinth and Paul made a brief and painful visit to the Corinthians uh, this visit is not mentioned in Acts, but is inferred in 2 Corinthians 2, 1 and other places. Um, and I'm gonna take issue with that in just a bit. Upon returning to Ephesus, Paul regretfully wrote the, his sorrowful letter to urge the church to discipline the leader of the opposition. Now, here it's singular as one leader but it appears that there's other men that are under the authority of this one person that's causing the opposition. Everybody with me so far? Okay. Titus carried the letter. Paul, anxious to learn the result, went to Troas, then to Macedonia to meet Titus on his return trip. And Paul was greatly relieved by Titus's report that the majority of the Corinthians had repented of the rebellion rebelliousness against Paul's apostolic authority. However, a minority opposition still existed, evidently led by a group of Judaizers. I'm gonna explain what a Judaizer is in just a minute. And it was there in Macedonia that Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, sent it with Titus and another brother. This took place late in 56 AD. So both 1st and 2nd Corinthians were written in 56 AD. Now, um, there is an alternative view that the anguish letter of 2nd Corinthians, especially in 2, is in fact um, 
another scenario than the one that I just mentioned. And what I'd like to do this morning as we start sort of a review and what the reason that this letter is being written is so that you'll have some understanding. There's two views that are out there. One, that there was a bunch of Judaizers that were stirring things up and they had one guy that was over all of them. And the other view this morning um, we'll get into, and the second view is the one that I lean towards rather than the first one. So let's discuss, first of all, what is a Judaizer? Turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 15. Here's the situation. This would have been the first meeting to discuss a situation with the Christians in Jerusalem because there were those there that had a problem with Gentile Christians. So we read in verse one of Acts chapter 15, we'll read the first five verses. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Now who is he talking about? He's talking about Gentile believers. You, You can't be saved unless you're circumcised. That is what a Judaizer is. A Judaizer is a Jew who became a Christian but held on to certain traditions that were Jewish. And now they wanted to impose those traditions on the Gentiles. So that's what a Judaizer is. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small uh, dissension and dispute, that means they had a great big fight, With them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other men should go down to Jerusalem and to the apostles and elders about this question. What about this? So being sent on the way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia, Samaria, describing the conversation of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. Paul's ministry was off to the Gentiles, the first one being Cornelius, being saved. But when some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, so now we have Jewish Jews who were Jews, but now they're believers in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. We have a problem. So I will paraphrase as Peter gets up and explains um, um, that God is making no distinction between a saved Jew and a saved Gentile. Down in verse 10 and 9, he says, makes no distinction between us and them purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which which neither our fathers nor we were able to do or bear? 
we couldn't do it. <laughs> and now you're wanting the Gentiles to do it? And so both sides were hurt. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So now that both sides have been heard, um, everybody becomes silent and they look to James. Now this is interesting to me because um, they're worthy apostles. But as we read James, he seems to have a particular pastoral apostolic authority when it came to make a final decision. Okay, I've heard this side over here. I've heard this side over here. Everybody's quiet. Who gets up to speak? This would be James, the brother of of our Lord. And basically said, Simon has declared how God at the had first visited the Gentiles to take out to them a people of his name. And what does he do? He quotes scripture. He quotes the Old Testament. In verse 15, and this is the word of the prophets just as it is written. Now what is one of my main points that I, I say every week? That you can't read through a chapter of the Bible without it saying it is written. Again, tying the old and the new together. And that's why you really can't have a complete picture of what's going on in the world today right now without having a really good prophetic background of the Old Testament to the smallest detail. Well, what's the detail here? Well, what did God say about Gentiles in the Old Testament? And we read here that he's gonna quote Amos chapter nine. He says, after this I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and so I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Now this is important. Just because you're a Gentile now and Jesus died on the cross for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, well, if you take that out of context, you can come up with universalism. What is universalism? It means that Jesus died on the cross for the whole world. That means everybody's saved. And that's the attitude of the Pope right now. It doesn't matter as long as you believe in God, you're going to make it. That is false doctrine, and it needs to be exposed. Exposure is one of the things that I want to highlight um, this morning. But it was James who stood up and said, the Lord said himself, saying, uh, the Lord who does all these things. And then it goes on, and he says, this is what we're going to do. Let's write a letter. Let's write a letter. We'll send it by some chosen men named uh, Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And basically, the letter is saying, we're not gonna put any restraints on you except that which would be natural once a person is born again. And um, he mentions... um, 
um, keeping yourself sexually uh, uh, clean, abstain from things offered to idols, and this falls into the area of stumbling. Now, the Bible says you have liberties, but you shouldn't, you might have a liberty that somebody else doesn't have a liberty with. And um, maybe uh, you're a Jew who's going over to a Gentile Christian's house, and, or vice versa, and um, you decide you're gonna bring bratwurst and uh, pork sandwiches. <laughs> and you might have the liberty to eat them, but it would stumble the other person. And he says, therefore, just don't do it for love's sake. Yeah, you got the liberty to do that. Don't do it. Why? Don't stumble them. Love them. And if that's going to cause him to be stumbled, then don't do it. The issue is love. But we're not going to put any restraints on you. He states the obvious. Um, And consider who he's writing to. He's writing to the pagan society of Corinth. And I'm going to get back to what I think the real issue is here, not the Judaizers, and um, challenging Paul's authority as an apostle and the way he looked and his demeanor and and his outward appearance. Um, So this morning, we're reading about the Judaizers. I don't think this is the reason Paul was writing this letter. I lean more towards... um, The second reason, and to do that, we need to go back to um, 2 Corinthians 1. In Corinth, uh, we already read that, that they're very legalistic. However, I do tend to lean toward that it was addressed to an individual. Uh, If you look at 1 Corinthians uh, 5, did I say 1 Corinthians 5? Yeah, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 5. I believe this is the real issue of why Paul is writing this letter. So let's read verse is 1 through 13. It is actually, he's writing to the Corinthians. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Well, when you're born again, and you're living in a city like Corinth that is used to this, even to an extreme, um, that, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you're, and you're puffed up about it, and you've not mourned that he, singular, who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For indeed, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, I've already judged. Now he's using his apostolic authority. And this is what they're questioning. Uh, As though I were present concerning him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom you are gathered together along with my spirit and with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan, for the destruction of his flesh, why? That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Let's stop and pause on this a second. 
All right, what is he saying? Here's a guy sitting in the pew. Everybody knows what's going on and nobody's saying anything about it. Corinthian lifestyle. And it had affected even the church. Paul says, kick him out. Get rid of him. Why? So that when he dies, hopefully um, uh, it will turn him over to the devil for a while and let the devil work him over. And hopefully he'll repent. And if he repents, then he'll be saved in Paclation being he's not saved right now. He's living in what we would call adultery or fornication. We'll finish this down to um, verse thir- down to verse eight here. Your glorying is not good. Remember the background in Corinth. Do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Well, he's sleeping around. Big deal. Why don't we sleep around? Most of the people in Corinth sleep around, so let's sleep around. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may become a new lump, since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, or the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, so that there's no misunderstanding. Just turn the page to chapter 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11, and here it can't be stated any plainer. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Question, was the church in Corinth deceived? Oh yeah. Neither fornicator, nor idolater, nor adulterer, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Plainly stated, if this is a common lifestyle that's been accepted into the church, that person is not going to heaven. So, Paul says, look, I'm not there, but I've already decided. This guy's salvation is at stake. And not only that, but it's having a leavening, not a good effect to the rest of the church that's there. So this is telling us here that this man, unless he repents and uh, gets uh, and comes back around, is not going to heaven. Let's make an application here. I would say since the 60s, I got a really great t-shirt. It says, I survived the 60s twice. Young guys think about it for a while. They'll get it eventually. And um, the moralities of the 60s, you know, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And then we had the Jesus movement. And a lot of people that were looking for, for peace and, and love actually found it in Jesus Christ. And they weren't finding it in the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And um, thousands and thousands, let me say hundreds of thousands, came to Christ during this period of time. And what we have here is a practical application. Because I've noticed in the last mm, 20, 30 years, um, remember when all the, Stores were closed on Sunday. 
and everybody went to church whether they were saved or not. That's not happening today. And sleeping around, well, that's just a given. You know, that's just part of the, the loose morality that exists today. And you don't need to tell me this. You, you all know friends and people that are doing just that. There are people listening, a live stream right now. There may be people listening here. And you're living together. And you're not thinking anything of it. You come up with reasons like, well, we have to because, you know, we can't afford to rent. We both got to work. And I've heard it all. And I say, well, that may be true, but I have to be true to what God's word says. Um, You're not going to heaven. Say what? I said, you're not going to heaven. You're living in adultery right now. You're living in fornication right now. And I will take them to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, where it says, don't be deceived. You're deceived. And society is influencing you more than what the word of God is influencing you. Now, if you struggle with any one of these issues, ask yourself this question. If the Bible says one thing and I think the other thing, which is right? Yeah, but what if you don't believe the Bible is the word of God? How many churches today don't take that stand or could care less for that matter? So if uh, that's just a practical application of any of this, so there was this attitude in Corinth by when it uses the, the terminology here. Now you can go back to Second um, Corinthians and um, I want you to go to chapter 2. There was this attitude about Paul just as, just as who does this guy think he is? telling us what to do and how to do it. And um, so he's writing as an apostle. What I lean to that the reason for the writing of this letter we find uh, in chapter two, verse four, it's not about the Judaizers. It's not about men. It's about an individual person. And I believe that person is mentioned in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 4, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love that I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent not to be too severe. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. Not men, not a group, but a man. Um, But the church got together and they did what Paul said and they kicked him out. Well, in a little couple more chapters when we get there, and here's, here's part of it here, He's talking about this individual that, what, that was removed from fellowship. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps some, some would be swallowed up with too much sorrow. This guy repented. And now he's back in church. And you can almost see it. You know, back in church? Back in church? Murmur, murmur, murmur. Gossip, gossip, gossip. 
And Paul is saying, none of that. I don't want none of that. Um, We're talking about a continual lifestyle of this man. I'm not talking David and Bathsheba. That was different. And as a result, um, David's sin was forgiven. Well, this guy repents. And as a result of his repentance, he was welcomed back in. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Paul saw himself as planting that church, appointing leadership in that church, but then he's not there, and there rose up certain people that allowed this activity to take place. So as we refresh our memory a little bit between first and um, um, second Corinthians, um, this morning I would like to draw a contrast between the character of appearance of the Apostle Paul and remember what they said about his um, appearance? Um, Well, that it was fickle, proud, unimpressive in appearance and speech. I think uh, Paul, what we think of him, you know, the mighty apostle Paul, man, what what must he look like? Well, uh, history tells us that he was short. He had a high, squeaky voice. And the last thing he looked like was a mighty man of God. Okay, fickle, dishonest, and unqualified as an apostle. So that would have been um, Paul's outward appearance. And I want to make a contrast between the character and the appearance of the apostle Paul and some mega churches today in America. As I consider the appearance of the Apostle Paul, not good looking. Who else wasn't good looking from Isaiah? Jesus himself. He had no form that we would desire his outward appearance. What about Moses? Send Aaron, I can't talk. (laughs) And um, does not God choose the foolish things of this world? to confound ones that are eloquent, good-looking, and so on and so forth, with uh, a lot of PhDs behind their names. I won't give you what I think those letters stand for, but I think I've mentioned it from the pulpit before. (laughs) No. Peter and John, they heal this guy who went into the temple one day. Silver and gold have I none, but what I got I'll give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. They didn't have money. They had no money at all. And so let's see where we are nationwide and make a contrast. Jesus said man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Remember when Samuel came to Jesse? What are you doing here, Samuel? I'm here to have the next king of Israel. Go get your sons. And Abinadab, I think, was the first one that came out. He was tall, dark, and handsome. And what did Samuel say? Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. He, he looks like a king. 
And um, Samuel said, no, 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 no. Man looks at the outward. God looks at the heart. Went through all the sons. Nobody just left. No more sons? Well, it's David, you know, he's out taking care of the sheep. Go get him. And here comes David. And um, he was anointed then and there, the king of Israel, because God looks at the heart and not the outward appearance of a man. What about his work ethic? Um, Turn with me to Acts chapter 18. And we'll find when Paul goes from Athens and he comes to Corinth. So in Acts 18, we'll use the first six verses here. Uh, Did I say 18, Acts 18, I'm sorry. Verse one, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. This would have been the emperor. And he came to them. So there's Jews in Corinth. So because he was of the same trade, Paul, he stayed with them and worked for the occupation as a tent maker. Paul was a hands-on guy. He worked with his own with his own hands. And as he reasoned in a synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was constrained by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. We have Jews in Corinth kicked out because of the emperor in Rome. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garment and said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. So my point here is, Paul wasn't good looking, high squeaky voice, had a work ethic making tents. In other words, he worked with his own, he worked with his own hands. And um, he went through um, many trials as a result of this when he was not received. And um, I would like to remind you of the verse that he went through it, uh, trials and sorrows, even as we read in our text, even to the point of, well, let's go back and read it again because it's a major part of the study this morning. First uh, Corinthians 1, especially verse 8. And he doesn't want us to be ignorant. Church, the Lord doesn't want us to be ignorant about this truth. That our troubles which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure. Ready to give up. Too many trials, too many people who don't like me. So that we were despaired even of life. 
Now, I want to stop and say in the times in which we live, there's a lot of people who would admit it but feel that way. And I don't know how the non-believers are handling any of this at all when they listen to the, the evening news and the lies that are being perpetrated and um, a president who's really not a president and a government that's really not a government. And uh, there's an agenda going on. And this, this group knows it. And we're, watch, we're watching it unfold. So there was this attitude um, whoops, went, got, got uh, my verse here was despaired even of life. I just want to take a moment and encourage you. When you're having a bad day when you get up and you go, we're still here? We're still here. Lord, why can't we be out of here? Everything's happening. I got friends that are checking out, don't know the Lord, and they're checking out. And I hope you understand what I'm saying when I say checking out. They've despaired of life, but they don't have the solid rock of Jesus where Paul, even Paul, was at that place, even despairing of life. So if that's you this morning, don't be discouraged. Paul's saying, join the crowd. This is, this is what goes along with being a Christian. This is what the Bible teaches real Christianity is all about. Well, let's c- compare Paul's outward appearance and suffering with the largest church in America, where 52,000 people attend weekly. And let's, let's um, I'm talking about Joel Olstein. I could pick out many. And some are thinking right now, Dwight, you're naming names. And um, I can thank Peter because I was listening to his uh, Wednesday night study that took me to Ephesians, that took me to a verse where we're told to expose false teaching. Not to suggest it or stay away from it or just say, well, that's what they think or that's what I think. No, no, no. He says expose it. So when I drop a name, um, I do it because the scripture says there's another gospel out there that doesn't line up with the gospel that we're reading this morning. You'll never hear Joel Olstein talk about heaven or hell, maybe throw it in or, or hold up a Bible every once in a while, but basically a motivational speaker. Well, what does this, what does this guy look like anyway? Well, this is what he looks like. He could be a model as far as I'm concerned. Tall, dark, and handsome. Um, you know, Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. Well, Joel's got a nice little nest. You want to see his nest? Yeah, let me show you his nest. That's his nest. Yeah, it goes right along with the teaching of the, what Jesus taught. This, this, my friends, is another gospel. This is not what the Bible teaches. Concerning wealth, unless I misunderstood here, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter seven. And let's see what Jesus has to say about it. Matthew chapter seven. Instead of talking about being despaired 
even to the point of death, what is Joel Olstein known for with his book? It's called Your Best Life Now. Are we talking extremes here? If this is my best life now, I am really disappointed. <laughs> I'm really disappointed. Because I've been through many a fire, some to the point of despair, of saying, Lord, can't, can't we go home now? And um, Colossians 3 verse 1 says, if you're born again, then seek those things that are above where Christ is and long for that, that you're longing would be for that rather than that. Nothing wrong with that. Money is amoral, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. Nothing wrong with money. Nothing wrong at all. It's amoral. It can be used for good. It can be used for bad. Case in point, we sent $1,500 down to Haiti for selling earmuffs. That's money. And we're going to do it again next week. So you can use it for good, or you can use it for yourself and self-indulgence. Um, Joel Olstein's attitude, this is your best life now. Health and wealth, enjoy it. Where all the Bible teaches, just the opposite, to deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Pick up a cross. Don't be offended if you're wearing a cross this morning. But if people would actually think what they're, they're putting on and wearing is a sign of uh, the ultimate form of uh, killing a person. Death by crucifixion was extremely painful and usually went on for for days. It was a horrible, horrible way to die. So Jesus in um, Matthew chapter 7, let me draw your attention to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name? By the way, there's a program on right now that's specializing in demons, using Catholic priests to hold up a crucifix to cast them out. And I think that's what they're referring to right here. We've cast demons out of people and done so many things in your name and wonders in your name and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, uh, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I'll liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock and the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat of the house that it did not fall because it was founded on a rock. But anyone hearing these sayings of mine, what was he talking about? Well, we're told in the Bible to have the mind of Christ. Well, what was the mind of Christ? Self-sacrifice, had nowhere to lay his head, and he didn't even have change in his pocket. And they asked him for a coin. I don't have one. You got one? Here. Whose who's image is on this one? Caesar's. Well, then give the Caesar's what's Caesar and then give to God's what's God. You were created in the image of God to be servants 
of the Lord. And when the hard times come, we read here, and this is a real Christian life to me right here. Um, Those who hear the word of God and does them. The winds came. The snow blew yesterday. The church did not fall down. And it beat on the house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. The rock of what? God's word. Anyone who hears these sayings of mine and doesn't do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Same storms. You see, Christians and non-Christians both go through storms. Uh, The ones who make it are the ones who read what this book teaches and the lifestyle and the attitude and the sufferings that go along with it, storms of life. And Paul did not give up. Did he despair even unto death? Yep. But he kept right on pressing on. And the reason um, that he kept on um, continuing is Matthew 7, I got that right, 21, 27. That is correct. Um, The reason Paul would refer to Joel here, turn to 2 Corinthians 2, verse 17. I've just dropped a name of the largest church in America with 52,000 people annually going to church weekly. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17 tells us, referring to himself, for we are not as so many peddling the word of God. So Paul had it in his day. They were peddling the word of God. But as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God and in Christ. And again, if you're taking notes, I got this from listening to Peter's study, because he, he's in Ephesians. He'll be finishing that up this Wednesday. Um, it says, these things expose. Don't pretend they're not there. Just say, well, they're Christians and let them be Christians and do their own thing. Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches. It says if it's another gospel and if it's a health and wealth and prosperity gospel and serving yourself rather than you're denying yourself, then that is another gospel and it needs to be exposed. Probably not a good time for an amen, but I'm asking for one anyway. Amen. 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 Does that mean they're not saved and going to heaven? No, they could be. I don't know. I'm not told to judge uh, the heart attitude, but I am a fruit inspector. And as a fruit inspector, I look at the lifestyle. What kind of lifestyle are they living? Are they denying themselves and picking up their cross? Or are they, as Paul would say in verse 17, are they peddling the word of God for alternative motives? Ooh, Dwight, this isn't a very comfortable Bible study you're giving this morning. It's getting to be towards Christmas time. Can't we have some holiday cheer come in here somewhere? We'll get there when we get there. 
I want to make the point that there's nothing wrong with money. Amen? Amen. What is wrong with money? The love of money. Ask any millionaire, how much money is enough money? Just a little bit more. It'll never satisfy you. Tim was telling me about a guy, uh, his name is unknown. Tim, Tim and I are the only ones that know, and now, now you're going to know, now the rest of the world is going to know. But uh, he travels with his business, fixing, fixing up tubs and does things, and he was telling me a story about this, this unbelievably beautiful place out in the middle of nowhere. He had to go down dirt roads to get to it, and all of a sudden just open up to this huge mansion. And he said it was unbelievable. And only one guy living there. And this was his comment on this person's personality. He said he probably looked to me like the most, the unhappiest person he had ever seen. And yet he had all of that. Which simply means that empty spot inside can only be filled and can only be satisfied when the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ are dwelling there. Now there's a good place for it, amen. You satisfy my soul. What a great song. And um, so, like I mentioned earlier, Mark is a trapper. He's going to go for it and, and um, we'll use money for good purposes. And uh, I'm not going to get into the whole Christmas tree stuff and buying presents and all that. That's up to you. I have no problem with either one of them. And um, I don't believe the Lord was born on December 25th. But um, um, it's a good time for family and friends to get together, enjoy one another, and have fellowship. And, and, but let me encourage you. This might be your last one. If you're thinking about getting some shots in for them and just say, listen, can I give you a different perspective of what's happening right now in the world and how late I really believe it is? In closing, many today, the fact is they are stressed out. They are depressed with trials and sorrows. Um, And Paul, again, would simply say, um, welcome aboard. In this life, you will have what? Persecution and trials. That's what the Bible teaches. Um, yes, God does work all things together for good. He's sovereign. He knows when to answer prayer and when not to. But what Paul did when he was at that, that point of not wanting to go on, um, I'll ask the question why and have you turn back to Acts chapter uh, 18 and I'll give you the reason why. Acts 18 And uh, I already read through verse six. I'm going to go through seven through 11. Why didn't Paul give up? And it says that he departed, remember there in Corinth, and he departed from there, not the city, just the, the, um, um, the Jews that were there, and entered a house of a, a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all of his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision and says, 
don't be afraid. Why would the Lord say don't be afraid? Because he was afraid. (laughs) To what point? To the point of despairing of even living? But speak and do not keep silent. Why? For I am with you, number one, and no one will attack you to hurt you. And then he says this, for I have many people in this city. We keep on pressing on. We keep on speaking the truth in love. Why? Because the Lord has many people in this city. And a lot of them are doing a lot of rethinking right now. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Paul tells us that the sufferings of this present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to come, your eternal home. And um, we'll close this morning in Romans chapter eight. And you're thinking Dwight's right on track because he already said he was closing once earlier, so... We'll see if he's honest with this one. Romans 8, last verse, picking up with verse 31 with hopefully some words of encouragement. Acts eight thirty-one. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? For if he did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not him also freely give us all things? It's a gift. When we think of a friend, family member, and we give them a gift, do they take out their billfold and hand you a 20? (laughs) No, a gift is a gift, and it's received freely. He has freely given us all things. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Is it Christ who died and furthermore is also risen? Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, I would interject here even unto death, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, and sword, as it is written. For your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Unbelieving Christian that's between forces right now, one pulling you towards the Lord and the enemy trying to keep you from him, know this, that if you're giving your life to Christ, um, this is what the real gospel is. I'll guarantee you, you'll never become a mega, mega church having 52,000 people weekly attending. Why do you think there's so many? Because the Bible says so. In the last days, people will gravitate having itching ears going to places where people tell them what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. So what does Paul say? It is written. For your sake we're killed all the way. That's what I'm signing up for sometimes. 
We are counted as sheep for the slaughter, yet in all these things we're more than conquerors to him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's stand up and we'll pray. Lord, as we dive into 2 Corinthians and we think of this pagan city and all the things that they had to work through and um, we thank you that Paul used his apostolic authority even though he wasn't there. He loved the guy enough to tell him the truth that he can't live that lifestyle and think he's going to heaven. And so, Lord, we all know people that are deceived and um, live alternative lifestyles, etc. And, Lord, we pray we don't give up on them. Uh, We pray for them this morning. We pray for us that when we have um, hard days um, that we don't think about giving up or turning back. Why? because there's many people that you have in this city, many family members that still don't know you. And so we pray in closing this morning, Lord, that everything that was by your spirit this morning would be deeply implanted in our hearts and minds. And Lord, just give us boldness and confidence. Um, Even when we're thinking like Paul or Moses, I can't speak or I can't talk and, and um, I don't have those qualities. You tell us that you'll speak through us and you'll never leave us or forsake us. In Jesus' name, what God's people said, amen. amen.